flat is a state of mind. Get to know the people, science, and stories that make the Kansas outdoors more than flyover country. This is Flatlander Podcast, presented by the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. What I see on my dirt is undescribable as the Bible. Hey, Flatlanders. It's a beautiful day here in the Sunflower State, and I'm one of your hosts, Lindsay. And I'm Tana. Happy to be back at the mic to celebrate another day in the Flatlands. I am so excited for this podcast that I have butterflies in my stomach. (laughs) Today, we'll be covering the majestic, the magical, and the marvelous Monarch. Our guest on the show today is Pam Martin. Pam is an education specialist at the Kansas Wetlands Education Center out by Great Bend. And I'll hand it over to Pam and let her tell you more about herself and her deep love of these charismatic little critters. Thank you, Lindsay. And I do love monarchs. <laughs> I've had people give me monarch t-shirts and I have a whole drawer full of monarch t-shirts. Um, and I came, um, they said to give you a little bit of background. I'm originally from Ohio. And I was lucky growing up. I had a mother that just left us go out all day. We were outside to pretty much do what we wanted to. We came back in to eat and that was it. And um, I had a grandfather that collected butterflies and moths. And I had another grandfather that would bring us things like snakes and fish and frogs. Um, So I got into collecting butterflies and moths too. And and my daughter says, well, why do you do that? Why would you want to kill something that you love? And I don't do that much anymore. But um, one time my sister and I were out in the pasture behind the house and there was this huge maple tree that we used to go to and it was full of monarchs. This was probably in September. And we called that the butterfly tree from then on. We only saw it once. But that's all it took was seeing those monarchs. And then um, I went to college, University of Akron, got a bachelor's degree in biology, worked at a research center as a chemist in a plant physiology lab, um, got married and moved to Kansas. And we moved to Kansas in 1991. And Dr. Chip Taylor from University of Kansas started his tagging um, program in 1992. And I've been doing it since 1992. And it, it was just wonderful. So we would go, I would take Brenna with me. And of course she was only about two then. And we go out in the fields and I have farmers stop and say, what are you doing out there? <laughs> and I would tell them what I was doing and they get all interested. And, um, So it was great. And then eventually I got involved at um, Provera National Wildlife Refuge, got on the board of Friends of Provera, and we started a butterfly festival and started tagging events. And then after a while, um, 12 years ago, I got the job here at the Kansas Wetlands Education Center, and we started a butterfly festival here. And the rest is history. (laughs) Well, Pam, we're so glad that you're joining us. Um, You really are the resident expert on these monarch butterflies. So I'm just thrilled to talk to you. Um, Before we get into more of the general like monarch butterfly biology, I'm wondering if you could tell us, um, you know, there's such a wide diversity 
um, within the insect world, within butterflies. And so why is it that monarchs are paid such special attention? One thing, they're, they're large. Um, they have a wingspan of up to three and a half inches. Um, they're beautiful. They're bright orange and black. But I think it's mostly because of that migration. Um, they're one of only two butterflies. And it used to be thought they were the only butterfly that made this migration north. And then a third or fourth generation removed from that migration north goes back south. So in other words, there are a lot of butterflies that migrate, but they, it's a dead-end migration. Um, they die, and that's it. But the monarch comes back with another, um, comes back, and we'll go through all that. Um, but I think, I think that's why. It, is, it just seems the whole process of that migration is so intriguing, and we still don't know even half of how they do that. I'm curious, who's the other migrating butter, butterfly? The painted lady. And, they migrate? Yes, and they migrate here in North America. But, okay, so the monarch can migrate over 2,000 miles. Um, that would be from Canada and then from New England. That's over 2,000 miles. But get this, the painted lady in Europe migrates 9,000 miles. Over six generations. My mind is blown. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I happened to catch this news release. Okay, when was this? 2018? 2018, I believe it was. Um, and they said that they had just proven that the Painted Lady migrates from North Africa to um, Great Britain and then on up to the Arctic Circle. And the way they figured that out was by volunteers watching. I mean, they would have binoculars. I could just see these Brits, you know, out there with these binoculars watching <laughs> up in the sky you know, for these little butterflies. Because painted ladies aren't near as big as, as a monarch. And, and through that and radar imagery, they were able to prove that they go over and they, they're high up. Most people, I mean, you have to have binoculars to see them. Um, and they go to the Arctic Circle, and then over six generations, they make that trip back to Africa. Wow. That's insane. It I is. had no idea. It is. And do North American painted ladies, do they migrate at all, or are they just... They do. Um, they migrate right. from the south. They'll, they'll migrate up here, um, but nothing like they do in uh, Europe. So actually... The monarch is bested by the painted lady, the little diminutive painted lady. Wow. In North America, they hold record, right? Oh, yes, definitely. <laughs> okay. definitely. I, yeah. I will not apologize for derailing our conversation temporarily to painted ladies. I just learned something fascinating, and I'm so happy that I asked it. Yeah. Um, no, I'll, I'll bring us back on track really quick. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Okay, so um, one of the next questions that we have for you, Pam, is why are they called monarchs? From what throne did they hail from? Why why are they called that? Are they are they named after some regal uh, they, royal figure? They are, it, and I hope I'm right here, but I think it was King William. Um, his colors were orange and black, 
And so the monarch was named the monarch because those were his colors. And it's looked upon as a very regal butterfly. And they're actually a tropical butterfly. You know how we have neotropical birds like tanners and um, orioles that actually live most of their lives in the tropics, but just come here to breed. Monarchs are the same thing. They live most, well, they're a tropical butterfly that has been able to take advantage of the food source in North America. So they're, they're kind of almost neotropical. Wow. So other than those distinguishing colors, that orange and black, are there any other distinguishing characteristics we should look for when trying to identify a butterfly as a monarch, Pam? Yeah, a lot of people get them mixed up with painted ladies. Um, and painted ladies, too, when, when they're flying, they flash um, orange. And people get all excited. And that's fine because it's orange, you know, and, and they do have some black on them. Um, but they're much smaller. Um, they have a different flight pattern. And on the outside of the wings, it's totally different. Um, they're kind of a brownish gray with some pink and white. Whereas the monarch, I mean, there are three colors. They're orange, black, and white. And then the viceroy is the other one. And this is cool stuff here. Because the viceroy is a little bit smaller, but not always, because monarchs have a huge range in size. But they're orange and black and white. <laughs> um, the best thing to look for is in the middle of the hind inside wing is a black line, which the monarch does not have. And also, excuse me if I remember right, I'm trying to picture it in my head. Um, on the outside and the inside, I believe they have some white along the edge, the black edge that the monarch doesn't have. But if you just look inside, you'll be able to, to tell. Um, and do you want me to go into mimicry with this? <laughs> okay, because this is really cool. So um, for ages, scientists thought that viceroys were just mimicking monarchs. In other words, monarch caterpillars eat milkweed. In milkweed, there's a poison called cardiac glycosides. And as the caterpillar eats the milkweed, it builds up those cardiac glycosides in its body. And then um, if a bird tries to eat it, and, and the quintessential video of this is a blue jay. The blue jay eats that caterpillar and goes, ah! <laughs> it throws up all over the place. <laughs> and, you know, now most people, <laughs> if they do something that makes them sick, they don't eat it again. Same with the blue jay or any other bird. Um, they won't eat it again. They look for that yellow, black, and white striped caterpillar. If they see it, they avoid it. Well, as the caterpillar goes through its life cycle, through the chrysalis and then to the adult butterfly, um, it retains those cardiac glycosides. And so the monarch butterfly is also poisonous. Well, that gets us to the viceroy looking just like a monarch. And it makes sense. You know, we thought, well, it's, it's copying, just like a fly copies a bee. The bee stings, um, the fly doesn't, but it gets the reward of um, that warning coloration of the bee. We thought that was going on with the monarch but it, and the viceroy, but it turns out viceroy caterpillars eat willow. In willow is something called salicylic acid. 
Salicylic acid is a poison. It tastes bad. So it's the same thing. It's called Mullerian mimicry, where they both have warning coloration that is poisonous to an animal and makes it an avoidance issue. But, and here's the cool stuff. Okay, so I get off on this. I'm a <laughs> nature nerd. I admit it. <laughs> From the time I was born, I think. Um, so, different species of milkweed have different levels of cardiac glycosides. Some milkweed don't have any cardiac glycoside in it. Because in nature, there's this chemical warfare going on between insects and plants. And so, and this is so cool. I'm getting off topic, but if a plant is attacked by a lot of caterpillars, guess what? It produces more of the um, protective chemical that makes it taste bad. Um, So milkweeds are no different. And so getting back to what I was saying, I'm sorry, I'm jumping around, but getting back to what I was saying is um, the caterpillars that don't have the cardiac glycosides benefit from the ones that do because the blue jay doesn't know the difference. So that's pretty cool. And monarch butterflies, they've done research on this. If given a choice, they will choose the milkweed that has the higher cardiac glycosides to lay their eggs on. Wow. Yeah. Guess which one has the highest. Now we grow it here, but it's actually a Southern milkweed which is tropical milkweed. Okay, so we've talked about how to identify monarchs. Um, We've also talked about what they eat. Lindsay, did you have a useful tool for identifying monarchs and other species of butterflies in Kansas? Yeah, that's a great question, Tana. We actually have a pocket guide that's available for free for people to pick up. Uh, I think it's called a pocket guide to common Kansas butterflies. Pam, is that right? Do you you know the title of that off the top of your head? Yes. We use that all the yeah. time. Uh-huh. And I think yeah. you can pick up a copy of this pocket guide at any of the nature centers that we have here in Kansas. It's available for free. Um, I know that if you're in the Pratt area, you can drop by the Pratt office and we have some we get, you can pick up there. Um, it, it comes a lot of different kinds of butterflies that you can find in Kansas. There are good comparative pictures between monarchs and viceroys and painted ladies in case you're ever confused. But um, off the cuff, I think just the sheer size of them is a good way to tell the difference between them if you don't have that pocket guide on hand. Like Pam mentioned, those monarchs are quite a bit bigger compared to the other two species. Um, and uh, they're, they kind of fly a little differently, too. They glide around um, and they don't flap their wings right. quite as much as the other two species do. Yeah, they're just, I don't know, monarchs are, they're just majestic. <laughs> Um, they have, they have power to flight where they can go 12 miles per hour or more. But, um, a lot of times they're, they usually cruise at about 10 miles per hour when they're looking for nectar and that type of thing. Um, and speaking of that, another plug, there's also two pocket guides on wildflowers, I believe, and they have milkweed in there. So, Pam, what is a typical monarch butterfly lifespan then? Because they sound like such impressive creatures. How long do they live? It depends. <laughs> How's that? Um, mostly they live in uh, two to six weeks. But the generation that we have now that's making the migration lives eight to nine months. So they're one of the longest lived butterflies in North America. Um, the only other one that would beat them would be the morning cloak. And they live about a year. 
And they actually overwinter as an adult. They they go under bark and that type of thing. Um, but yeah, monarch, you, you want to be uh, a late August, September monarch. <laughs> so you get to live a lot longer. <laughs> that is so crazy. I never understood that that was how that worked. And that those late yeah. season butterflies were the ones that made that big trek. Yeah. Those right. late season butterflies are also larger in body size, right, Pam? Not necessarily. Um, they they vary a lot. And, and what they found, and um, we'll get to tagging here, but through the tagging research and other research going on, um, they found that the larger monarchs are usually at the front of the migration, and they're the ones more likely to make it. The smaller the monarch, the less likely it is to make a successful journey. And also, um, the later the monarch migrates, the less likely they are to make it. A lot of different factors going on there. Yeah. Okay. That's really interesting. I was under the impression that the monarchs that you see in the fall as they're heading back down south to Mexico were like 20% larger in body size because they had to travel a lot further. Well, they, okay. So your, your average monarch weighs about half a gram. And, um, just like birds, they try and build up a fat store. Um, and so be, at the end of, of the season, they're the, the ones that are migrating. They start nectaring like crazy. And I don't know if our listeners know this, but there are bee evolved flowers and there are butterfly evolved flowers. And monarchs will nectar from both. Um, the butterfly evolved flowers have a 15, about a 15 percent um, uh, amount of uh, carbohydrates, whereas bees are 20 to 40 percent. But those butterfly flowers have amino acids in them. And that's what the monarchs and all the other butterflies need for egg production and also other physiological needs. So. By the time they start that migration, and hopefully by the time they get down to the roost sites, they will have gained a tenth to 20 or one tenth to one twentieth. Okay, (laughs) sorry, I'm seeing it in my head, but I'm not saying it right. Um, 0.1 to 0.2 grams of weight. So, like on Saturday when we did our tagging event, most of them that we caught had plump abdomens. So they're, they're good. They're going to be good unless they hit an area that doesn't have you know, much nectar flowers. So Pam, I've got a level with you. I am a fish girl. I'm a fish nerd. I love fish, but I realize there's a common characteristic between fish and butterflies and that both have scales. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that and the scales on a butterfly? Yes, because they're so cool. Have you guys seen that poster? where the photographer took, I don't know how many years, to find the whole alphabet in butterfly wings? No, I haven't seen that. Uh, so cool. So it's the whole alphabet in butterfly wings in, in the scale patterns, and then the numbers zero through nine. It is so cool. So, um, yeah, the scales are made of chitin, um, just like the butterfly's exoskeleton and all insects' exoskeleton. Is that hard outer covering? made of chitin and the scales on the wings are also made of uh, chitin filaments and they're and they're in all different shapes i mean 
It's like each butterfly species has kind of a slightly different shape of scale. And on monarchs, those scales are tightly packed. Like if you touch a sulfur butterfly, they're those yellow ones that you see a lot of. A lot of the scales will rub off on your fingers. But on a monarch, you have to try. I mean, you have to try to rub that off. And um, again, scientists have done a lot of research on, well, how do the scales help the butterflies? And they help them fly more efficiently. They put them in little wind tunnels. If you can imagine that, you know, teeny little wind tunnels, these, these butterflies, and they make them fly into the wind. And then they measured if they rub off all the scales, they can still fly, you know, just like a dragonfly. And there are clear wing butterflies. Um, but if you don't take the scales off, they're more efficient flyers. And don't ask me how they have all these equations to figure that out. Also, it makes them more slippery so that they can get out of spider webs. Um, also, it just makes their wings stronger. Um, so, yeah, the scale. Oh, oh, and the, it's, the scales are so cool. So monarchs have pigment in their scales. They have orange and black and white. But say a um, red spot, purple or a black swallowtail that has blue on it, blue and purple and green colors. It's just like in birds, it refracts the light. It bends the light. Um, so it's the structure of the scale that gives the color. How cool is that? Uh, it's, it's awesome. <laughs> One of my favorite things to tell people uh, about birds and their the colors of their feathers is that mm -hmm. blue jays aren't actually blue. They're black, but they don't right. look black yeah. because of the way they reflect the light. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And blue is a very, um, it's a pretty rare color in nature, really. Super, super cool. Wow. Well, thanks for filling us in on those scales there, Pam. That's so fascinating. I can just imagine butterflies in these little, little wind tunnels and all the science <laughs> that goes into that. Yeah. <laughs> so what about male and female butterflies? Um, is there any sexual dimorphism in monarch butterflies? And can I tell a difference between a male and a female? Yes, you can. And um, when we do the tagging, we have to do that. And monarchs make it simple. Um, um, they have a, there's, oh, I don't know, a few raised um, um, scales on the kind of the lower part of the hind wing on the one vein. And they're called scent um, glands. Now in monarchs, they're actually not used anymore. They're kind of like our wisdom teeth. They're vestigial. They're, they're not used anymore, but they're still there. So the males have, have those little scent pouches on the hind wings. And also their veining is more narrow normally than the female. Female doesn't have those scent pouches. And then if you really wanted to, you know, get into it, um, the male on the tip of the abdomen has claspers. So that when they mate, he clasps the female. Um, and when they mate, um, they, they fly together and the female is clasped underneath the male. And then they, they fly across. This is really cool. Pam, are you telling me that these butterflies, their mating process is in air? It's airborne? It can be. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? It's amazing. <laughs> Learn something new all the time. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> Every day. <laughs> so those scent pouches, Pam, they visually, if I were watching a butterfly fly, you said they're on the inside of the wings and they show up like black dots. Is that right? 
Correct. Okay. But you, you, couldn't, you really couldn't see them um, when they're flying, but when they're on a plant, um, you know, butterflies open their wings, close their wings, open their wings, and you can get a glimpse of it then. Um, but when they're flying, it is pretty difficult. You have to be like Chip Taylor probably to tell <laughs> which yeah. one's which. I was camping with my family at Cheney Lake this weekend and we saw some flying around and we saw, um, I think one that had landed and opened its wings and we could see those dots. So that, that was pretty cool. Oh, cool. And it's so, it's so great for kids because it's easy, you know, and they'll think about it and they'll say, oh, okay, two dots. It's a male. <laughs> it's a boy. Yay. <laughs> I'm sure we can share a, a visual side by side between a male and a female. So our, our listeners can get a good visual of it too. Yes. That'd be great. I can send you a picture. And then we have, um, what we did is we have Riker mounts um, fixed up for people to see. So in the top, we have the um, butterfly with the tag on it and then a female and a male. So they can just see that how it really is. And, and a lot of butterflies have sexual dimorphism. The swallowtails I was talking about, um, the females have the real pretty blue and the males don't. Um, they have two gorgeous rows of yellow um, spots, but they don't have hardly any blue. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, so now that our monarchs have mated, it's time to lay the eggs. Yes. How do they choose the perfect milkweed plant to lay their precious eggs on? Yeah. And that's really important because if they mess up and say, pick a sunflower, the caterpillars starve. It will not eat anything else except milkweed. They're just programmed that way. Um, so she's using really three, three senses. Um, they do use sight. Um, butterflies are like most insects. They have those huge compound eyes. Um, and insects, can, as far as we can tell, can see a lot more different shades of green than we can. So as she's flying over the field, you know, she's looking for that particular shade of green. And then they have um, chemoreceptors in their antenna that pick up the chemicals, just like we have in our nose. And so what the way that works, and it's really fascinating, is... Um, they pick up the chemicals and if it's the correct chemical of a milkweed, it's kind of like fitting a key in a lock. The chemical locks into that receptor and the brain sends a message, ah, milkweed and down they go. And then the last test is kind of like taste. And it's not like our taste. Again, it's a, a chemoreceptor. And so on their um, front legs, all insects have six legs and monarchs have two. Their first pair of legs are really, really tiny. They're tucked up under the head, but they have these little pointy hairs that they slice the leaf. And then those chemoreceptors pick up that chemical. And if it fits key in the lock, then yep. It's the right plant. And then she, yeah, bingo. <laughs> and then she brings her abdomen down. And I've watched them do this. It only takes seconds. And she glues the egg to the underside of the leaf. And usually they'll lay their egg um, up on the top on the tender leaves or on the flower. So it's easier for that tiny caterpillar to, to eat the leaf. 
That's amazing. So is it true that monarchs can only lay their eggs and have the successful hatch and survival of their caterpillars if it is on milkweed? It has to be milkweed, Pam? There's some reports in, oh boy, right now I cannot think of the plant. And I, I'm not, I, it, there's something in my head, but I'm not going to say it because I'm not 100% sure it's right. But there is a plant that is somewhat like milkweed that I have read that some caterpillars can survive on. Um, but I'm not sure what their survival rate is on that. It pretty much has okay. to be milkweed. And in North wow. America, we're blessed to have, I think it's 108 species. Oh, maybe it's more than that. It's a lot of species of milkweed, but predominantly they eat 30 species from 30 different species of milkweed. Okay. Well, that's not too narrow then. Man, it was starting to sound like a pretty tough battle out yeah, there. No, no. And, and <laughs> there's lots of milkweed in, in North America, fortunately. So, yeah. Good. So let's talk about milkweed a little bit. Um, it has the word weed in it. So is that something that is typically perceived as a weed and faces threats because of that? Um, is it seen as a, a weedy plant if it shows up in your garden or in your crop field? Very much so. And, and as part of the um, problem, loss of habitat and, of course, uh, for the decline in the monarch numbers. And that habitat, of course, habitat are the four things that any uh, animal needs to survive, which is food, water, space, shelter. And food, of course, is a big one. And yes, farmers don't like milkweeds in their field. <laughs> um, and, and in, oh, maybe 30, 40 years ago, cornfields, like where I grew up in Ohio, you know, heart of corn country, and um, there are milkweed plants all over in, in the cornfields, usually along the edge, you know, not so much in the corn, but along the edge. And we've gotten so efficient with our herbicides that we have um, killed off a lot of the milkweed. And so that's a real problem. Monarch numbers are just um, plummeting big time. Um, and I don't know if you, if you want me to wait to go into that or um, continue talking about milkweed. Milkweed is a super cool plant. Uh, we've tried to use the sap, which is real milky for latex, and they actually have used it for latex. Um, the um, silk that's attached to the seed um, is used for um, insulation. And also in World War II, I just love this. In World War II, when, when we ended up going to war with Japan, when they attacked us, our supply of K-Puck dried up. K-Puck is what we put in life preservers. So what the government did is they sent out um, a plea to all over the Midwest, collect milkweed. So they had 4-H groups and Boy Scout groups out collecting milkweed. And we're talking tons. I've got old photographs of railroad cars piled high with milkweed seed. Now, this is how much milkweed used to be in the Corn Belt. So much that they collected tons that they shipped on trains. Uh, one of the factories was in Minnesota. And I forget how many tons they used, but it saved a lot of um, our soldiers' lives. Well, be mostly airmen when they would splash down for the Navy. 
I had no idea that milkweed was used in that way. Yeah, I love that story. I, I just love it. Yeah. And they're, and they're actually still doing research on using the floss. I'm sorry, I said silk. The floss is what it's called um, for different fiber uses. Pretty cool. I'm, I'm just blown away right now. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, it's fun. Those are just fun facts. And I have um, in St. John, where where I used to live, we did a lot of reenactment stuff there for tourism. And uh, we did a World War II um, festival. And I came across in in the teacher, they used to have these teacher magazines that would go out. It was a whole article about milkweed and collecting it. And so I, I don't have the original, but I copied it. Super cool. Yeah, I would love to see that. Um, so speaking of milkweeds and um, kind of bring us back around to their importance in the life cycle of monarchs, is it true mm-hmm. that monarchs only lay one egg per milkweed leaf that they find, or do they lay clumps of eggs? Usually it's one egg per plant because those kind of um, monarch caterpillars get two inches long before they make their chrysalis. So they usually end up eating most of that milkweed. Um, But when the monarchs come back from Mexico and they're laying their eggs, a lot of times um, if we have a cold, wet spring, there's not much milkweed. And I've watched this. They will do egg dumping. And you'll have milkweed that's up three inches and it'll have 20 eggs on it because there's nowhere else for her to lay her eggs. And so she just dumps them. Um, And it's, of course, a lot of those caterpillars then aren't going to have enough food. Um, But I mean, she has no other choice. And do we have any numbers on the like survival rate or uh, reproductive success rates of monarch butterflies? Do most of those caterpillars uh, hatch? Um, most of them hatch. Most of them get um, either parasitized or um, preyed upon in the caterpillar stage. I mean, I'm sure there are things that eat the eggs, but, you know, you don't read as much about that. And I'm not as familiar with that. but. Oh, gosh, you've got um, wasps that parasitize caterpillars. Um, You've got the um, caterpillar killers that make the caterpillar zombies. You know, Um, there's just so much. So out of the 400 eggs or so that they lay, maybe a handful make it to adulthood. And that's why they lay so many eggs. And when you think about it, almost all insects lay a lot of eggs because there's so much predation and so much that can go wrong along the way. <laughs> it's a scary world out there for a caterpillar. Mm-hmm. Well, I watch, or, or an adult. Um, never, <laughs> never forget this. I, I raised them for fun and also for education. And uh, I had released, this wasn't a monarch though. I had released a black swallowtail and I held it out the back door and I didn't check, let it go. And there was a Mississippi kite in the tree and she swooped out and grabbed that butterfly. It got maybe six yards away and that was it. So now I always watch because, you know, it's like when you release with kids, you don't want a bird to come down. 
<laughs> and crab the monarch. I guess it would be an, uh, a lesson in, you know, nature is hard, but <laughs> I now check. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's traumatic. Yeah, yeah. And kites, this is pretty cool. Um, I just happened last year. There was the monarch I was taking photos of it in the yard. I'd gone up on the porch and the monarch lifted off and a kite swooped down between me and the monarch and their talons click when their tendons grabbed the insect and it went click. And I thought, well, obviously he hasn't learned that they taste bad and make you sick. <laughs> that was, you know, nature's hard sometimes. Yeah. A little vengeance at least. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's funny well Pam we've talked about the caterpillar stage a little bit we've talked about the butterfly stage um but let's talk about those beautiful emerald green chrysalises or chrysalids as I've heard them called Pam are either one of those um a good way to describe that or is one more correct I guess I've always seen I have heard chrysalids um I always say chrysalises, chrysalises, <laughs> chrysalids are easier to say. Sure. I, I'm not sure. I, I would have to look that up. <laughs> well, if you've never seen a monarch butterfly chrysalis, I would extremely, extremely, extremely suggest that you go to Google and check those out because they're absolutely stunning. They almost look like a piece of jewelry. Mm -hmm. They're this beautiful green color and have um, these shimmery like gold bits to them. And they're just absolutely fascinating. And to think that an insect is able to make a structure so complex and so beautiful boggles my mind. So Pam, can you tell us what those structures are made out of? And like, how does a caterpillar know to make this? Um, they're made out of chitin. Again, it, it's basically just another exoskeleton. Um, and those gold spots. Now they have a white stripe, a black stripe, and then a gold stripe up, up around the top. But then there's little gold um, spots along the bottom. And those are spiracles. And that's how they breathe. That's where the air exchange is. Um, because, you know, they got, they got to have a way to breathe. <laughs> they need oxygen in there, um, which is pretty cool. So if they don't have those gold spots, they're not going to develop because they're not getting any air. Um, but it's it's all... A pro, you know, you ask, well, how do they make that chrysalis? Um, the same way they make their exoskeleton, the uh, um, biochemistry <clears throat> is involved in it and physiology and a whole lot of chemicals and enzymes um, that I don't couldn't even tell you how that happens. And I'm not sure we even actually know, but it's kind of pre-programmed um, and they know there is an enzyme that's released when they reach the right growth stage. And from the time that they hatch from that egg till 10 to 14 days later, usually, usually in the height of summer, when they make the chrysalis, um, there's, they molt five times. And then that fifth time, when they reach that, that right size, an enzyme is released and they know to leave. They almost always leave the plant they're on and they find a place to hang upside down and they make a little silk pad. They have silk glands in their mouth. Um, it's very strong, a lot like spider silk. It's just um, not quite maybe as sticky, but they make a little silk pad and they hook the pro legs that aren't true legs, but their last two pro legs in there and they hang down like a J and they hang 
and I've watched this whole process almost exactly 24 hours. And then right before they're going to make the chrysalis, they go straight down and right behind their head, the exoskeleton splits and they start convulsing. And that old exoskeleton just moves, moves up towards the little silk pad. And then this is the tough part. They have to take out their prolegs quickly, let that old shed go off and put them back in. And if they miss, they drop and they die. So, but they don't miss very often. So then um, they, they form the stem. It's called a cremaster. Cremaster. You could get that syllable on the right um, spot. And they spin, they spin around, they gyrate. It's like the twist. You guys are too young. But when I was a kid, the twist <laughs> was a dance. And it's just like that. Every time I see it, I think, oh, it's the twist. And so they're twisting around, they're making that stronger and they're getting rid of that old shed if it didn't come off yet. And then they harden that exoskeleton hardens. And then the cool stuff happens. And I, and I got to tell this story. Okay. So um, we've never known what happens inside. It was conjectured that everything turns to goo and the cells re um, Oh, what's the word I want? Not realign, but they, for lack of a the scientific term, yeah, yeah, they, they have new jobs. Um, and, the, and then within about two weeks, wow, you've got a butterfly. Only two weeks for this to happen. But this guy who was an engineer was really, really curious about this. And so he tried x-rays. He tried a CT scan to look inside the chrysalis, and none of those worked. Well, then he read about MRIs, magnetic resonating uh, image imagery, and so he got um, a place to agree to put themselves. thirty chrysalises through MRI. So he started out from—I forget where he was going from—but he started out. I think it was to California. And along the way, he stopped to get gas, and somebody stole his car. So they stole his computer, his research on all this, and the chrysalises. But it cost thirty thousand dollars to do this. And he had an appointment and he couldn't get another appointment. So he put out um, a call to every around, you know, this, this is a close knit community of people that are really into this. And so they got him 30 more chrysalises and he was able to do it. And, and what he found out was that before, even before the chrysalis forms, that caterpillar is already changing. The digestive system has already started to change. Um, the circulatory system is changing. Oh, what else? I've, a lot of things are already changing before it even makes the chrysalis. And um, so then he has these images and I would Google this and anybody Google this because it is so cool. And you can see all the structures start to form in these uh, different chrysalises at different stages. It, it, it's really, really cool. So then after that happens, and you can see where the wings are going to form, the head, the antennas, if you look really closely at the chrysalis. And when they're about ready to emerge, or eclose is the term for it, um, it pushes out to the bottom, the, the um, chitin breaks open, and it slips out. And at that point, um, it's very wet. There's a lot of liquid that comes out with it, and that's a good thing because those wings were all crumpled up in there. If they're dry, they won't unfold. If they're wet, they unfold. There's a huge amount of 
um, liquid in the abdomen. She, she or he pumps that liquid through the veins to unfurl the wings. And then after they're unfurled and somewhat dry, that cuts off and it no longer circulates through those veins. And then it takes about six hours um, to a day for them to be ready, fully dry and ready to fly. I had no idea that those veins, you know, I've heard them called veins before in the butterfly's wings, but I had no idea actually transported any of that liquid. I thought it was more just a support structure. That's fascinating, Pam. So now that our adult monarch has fully emerged from its chrysalis, what's its next step? Like, what's it going to do? Where's it going to go? And I know that probably depends on what leg of the migration journey it's in. So maybe we should cover the different legs of the migration. Um, it's, it's totally up to you. Which, which direction do you want to fly in? <laughs> oh, I like that. <laughs> glide. Um, well, let, let's glide into the migration. Um, and as you said, Lindsay, it depends on the time of the year. Um, let's see. So let's start... Let, let's start in Mexico. I, th I think that's the easiest way to do it. Um, and, and I'm going to try and make this as simple as possible because there's a lot of misinformation and confusion about the migration. There are actually four migrations. So pretend that we are in February of 2022. Um, the weather is starting to change in Mexico. The butterflies, whatever triggers, and we're, we're not exactly sure what this trigger is, but whatever triggers the butterflies to start getting active again happens. They start streaming out of the trees in, in cascades. It's really cool um, to the water because when they're in these roost sites, um, which are about 11 10,000 to 11,000 feet up in a transvolcanic mountain range. And this is only in about 50 acres um, that this, these roost sites are. They are roosting on Omayal um, fir trees. And those fir trees make a microclimate so that usually the temperature doesn't go above 60 degrees and doesn't go above 30 degrees. It's a hint. Heat sink. And I've, I've tried this actually here. Um, go on a cold day, go under a pine tree and just feel, take your coat off, step, you know, out in the open and then step under the pine tree. There is heat under those pines. And so that's what they're using. Also protects them from um, snow and rain and, and wet rain and snow are, are their enemies. So anyway, um, they start mating again and they start moving north. And Tanya, you were asking about um, paths and they do have paths and they follow the, the mountain range through Mexico, north up into Texas. Um, and along the way, they start laying eggs. Now they don't lay eggs in Mexico at the roost sites. They do it as they go north. They're mating, they're laying eggs. They come up into Texas, um, Oklahoma, Tennessee, that, that midline of about 37 degrees north, that first, that generation from Mexico. Um, and now we're getting to about, let's see, beginning of April. 
and they finally die. But their eggs are starting to go through the life cycle. So then this next generation, so we're going to call that generation one, the second generation, then some of them will stay in that area, but most of them now they'll start continuing north until they hit about 50 north latitude. And that is Southern Canada. And that's about where the end of the milkweed is. And now we're at June 1st. So that's just two migrations, one to 37th degree north and one at 50 degree north. Now, June and July, they pretty much kind of just hang where they're at. But down in Georgia and Texas and that area, a lot of those monarchs are gone. So there is a um, third migration that can happen that some of those monarchs from the north recolonize Texas and Georgia. So those numbers start building back up. Also, in our area, um, we're going through a third generation, usually, depends on the year. And then a lot of times we have a fourth generation. We're now in August. And it's that third or fourth generation, depending on whether it's um, farther north or farther south that makes the trip. And they go through what's called reproductive diapause. They no longer reproduce. They no longer lay eggs because reproduction takes a tremendous amount of energy. Um, They start storing lipids like we talked about. Um, They'll start doing directional flight either south, southwest, depending on um, what part of North America. And these are the monarchs east of the Rockies. There's a Western population that migrates along the coast to California. And some do go to Mexico, but most go to California. Um, So that's our fourth migration down to Mexico. Um, they fly 20 to 25 day, 20 to 25 miles a day on average. Um, if they hit a cold front, they can make a hundred miles. They will use thermals just like migrating birds. And they have a three to four to one ratio for every um, three to four feet they go forward, they lose a foot in altitude, but they're, that's really getting them pretty far ahead. Um, they use gliding flight as much as possible because, um, you know, flapping your wings takes a lot of energy. Um, let's see, when else? There's just so much. Um, let's see, it takes them that long. Oh, uh, lots of challenges along the way. A lot of them don't make it. Um, They need nectar plants, and and that's another big loss. We've lost a lot of our native plants like goldenrod um, and asters, and they need that to make the trip. So they finally get down there to Mexico, and then um, they go into kind of a torpor, and they roost on the trees in such numbers that sometimes a branch will break. And this was a huge mystery until 46 years ago, 1975, was when they finally said, yes, this is where they go. Uh, Dr. Fred Urquhart from Canada started a tagging program um, 50 years ago and had people doing tagging. And they knew that they were going south. 
Um, he was pretty sure it was in Mexico. So he hired Kenneth Brueger, who was an engineer, and his wife. And they went out and some loggers told him, hey, you need to go up here on this mountain. That's where all the monarchs are. And that's when they found him. And what's really cool is Dr. Urquhart came down in January of 1976 and a branch fell in front of him from the weight of the monarchs. And he was sifting through the monarchs and he found one with a tag from Minnesota. And that proved it. Isn't that the coolest story ever? Oh, yeah. <laughs> hey, Pam, I've got a quick question for you. You did a fantastic job explaining the whole migration and the four generations of migrating. I'm wondering if there is there an analogy that would help our listeners, mostly mostly me, remember <laughs> how that well, works. What I what what I what in, and we don't know exactly. I mean, think think about this. Um, and then that's why people get so excited about it, or it, they call it a miracle. Um, and it is a wonder because think of, of what happened for them to be able to find that place in those mountains. It's only 50 acres, but it's the perfect microclimate for them. Now, how in the world did they ever find that? And then to be four generations removed, it would be like your what? Great grandfather telling you, you have to make a trip to Mexico. I am not going to help you. I am, you know, you are on your own. You've got to find your way. Well, we would have maps, you know, and that type of thing. But they have to rely on, it's thought that they use some sort of sun compass, um, the circadian um, clock, um, maybe some um, Earth's magnetic field. And also they have, uh, oh shoot, it's a chemical in their eyes that sees uh, blue wavelength and ultraviolet light. They think light triggers it somehow, but we really do not know how they do this. And that is why they keep tagging it. And, and one, one really cool um, thing that Chip Taylor was just recently able to find out through tagging is that the start of the migration is totally predictable. When the sun is at 57 degrees, the sunlight, that's when the migration starts, always, without fail. And now he can pretty much time the migration by looking at the angle of the sunlight and knowing, okay, when the sunlight is at 57 degrees here, 57 to 43 degrees, we're going to have monarchs coming through. And that lasts about 8 to 14 days. Pam, I'm equal part. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's okay. I say, sometimes we never see them. They're 10,000 feet up, 1,000 to 10,000 feet up, and they go right by and we don't see them. Wow. But yeah. yeah. I'm like equal parts. It makes you wonder. Baffled. Sorry, Lindsay. But all, we, like, all we've heard about and all we know about monarchs, like it's an incredible amount of information we do know, but then all the information out there that we still don't know and don't understand. They're just so. I, you don't really think about it. I mean, they're an insect, so, you know, a bug to most people. It's just wild. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that I hope people really latch onto. And I think 
you know, a monarch is what we call a charismatic animal. It's beautiful. It has this amazing behavior migration. Um, but, you know, even flies have amazing behaviors. And, and I hope it makes people appreciate what a wonderful planet we live on and how important it is to save these animals, to make sure that they have the space, to make sure that this amazing migration continues. Yeah, Pam, you had mentioned multiple times these tags and the importance of these tags, all that we're learning from these tagging procedures. Can you tell us specifically what those tags look like? Um, You know, is that like a, what is that tag? How do you put a tag on a butterfly? (laughs) (laughs) Very carefully. (laughs) Um, And and just real quick, when I first started tagging in 1992, they sent you a little bottle of glue. It was about two inches tall with a little brush and, and these little square tags. And you had to hold the butterfly brush the glue, and then stick the tag on. And it was cumbersome, let me tell you. But then they came up with these uh, self-adhesive tags, and they're the size of a pencil eraser. And they come on a sheet, and you just peel them off with your fingernail or a safety pin. And you take the butterfly out of the net, you hold it. The strongest part of the wing is right behind the head. You hold the wings together, and then... You peel off the tag and you put it on what's called the discal cell, hind wing, outside hind wing on the mitten shaped cell. And then you hold it for three seconds and you let it go. And of course, you've got to record. You've got to record your date, um, the sex of the butterfly, uh, where you tagged it. Um, what am I forgetting? I don't have a tagging sheet in front of me. I can't believe that I'm forgetting this. Let's see. Oh, whether it is reared or wild. And they use all that. And, and it's amazing the information that they've um, come up with for that. Yeah. I remember doing tagging, I think when we were in like second grade on a field trip and we had people helping us out um, as we learned about that process. And it was so cool. And I love on this podcast, we've talked multiple times about examples of citizen science and ways that just average citizens can get involved in these scientific procedures, um, this research that's so interesting. So I think that's really cool and encourage all our listeners to look into opportunities to participate in a butterfly tagging event. Um, You will learn so much. It's just really fascinating to be a part of that process. Yeah. And we have um, a butterfly festival here every September, usually in the middle of the month. I think Great Plains Nature Center does some tagging. A lot of the nature centers do. And of course, up in Northeast Kansas, Chip Taylor, they at KU, they do that too. You won't regret it. <laughs> As someone who has personally tagged several hundred monarchs, it is a very <laughs> awesome experience. And when you take them out of the net and you put that little sticker on that discal cell and you release them, they, they're almost a little confused about where they are. So they'll hang out on your hand for a second or two before while they orient themselves and then they'll take off. It's it's a really yeah. awesome experience. If you haven't yet experienced it, I highly recommend it. Yeah, it is. We tagged um, 475 on Saturday and two and a half hours. And then one family brought their own tags and they tagged 50. 
So it's actually 525, which is, that's the most we've done at, at our festivals. So really cool. That's awesome. Um, so speaking of tagging so many monarchs, is peak migration coming up? Are we in the midst of it? When can people expect that year after year? We're in the midst of it. Um, we had, let's see, when that cold front come through? Friday, because it was perfect. Um, the first cool front came through Friday and we had a, well, they call it a fallout for birds. So I'm just using that for butterflies. And they literally were just dropping out of the sky. They were streaming past the front of the building, hundreds, probably thousands of them um, with, because they follow the cold front. It gives them a boost with their flight. And then they were dropping in the um, pollinator garden and they were so hungry. I could just pluck them off the flowers. Um, so that night, then I went out and sure enough, I found roosts in our tree line, counted a thousand there. And then just south, I found a thousand. I ran. I'm sure there were a lot more than that. I ran out of daylight. Um, and if you have not seen a roost, it's just amazing. Last year, we had two weeks of uh, peak migration. We had roosts for um, every evening for two weeks. And when I first found them, because they were over the water in the in the canal, so I had to wait through the water to get to them. And I just stood there and said, wow, wow. I had to, after 10 times, it's like, you know, quit saying that, quit saying that. But it was just mind-boggling. <laughs> I hope everybody gets to experience that at some time. It's amazing. I got to see one when I was a kid when we lived in Nebraska for a short stint, um, when I was in elementary school, we found one in our backyard on a crisp, cool autumn morning. And the branches were literally so heavy from all of these monarchs. They were drooping over and almost touching the grasses. It was, it was awesome. I mean, this was 22, 23 years ago. And my family and I still talk about that. It was an awesome experience. You don't forget it. Nope. Well, in science, modern science is making it so much more accessible to be able to observe butterflies in that capacity as well. And a really cool mm-hmm. example of that is um, these hummingbird drones that are being used. And I can't begin to talk about all the details of this, um, this experiment, this process, but it's really, really interesting. And I encourage everyone to Google these hummingbird drones. They're using them to basically get up close and personal with these butterflies in their roost sites in Mexico. I believe, right, Pam? Yes. Yes. It's amazing camera footage. Um, just amazing. Yeah. And it, because it looks like hummingbird and hummingbirds hum, you know, they buzz with their wings. It doesn't seem to impact the butterflies negatively. It doesn't disturb them so much as like, you know, a person trying to get up at close and personal with these migrations. And that's so important. You know, it's, it's such a small area that they're going to in Mexico, right? So disturbing them in that area could be really impactful in a negative way. So that's just fascinating. And I don't know if I mentioned when, when they go out, did I, did I say that when they, they go out, there's not much nectar, they drink the water and that react, that activates the lipids. Um, so the, the forest, in addition to providing the microhabit habitat, um, also provides and helps those streams that they need to activate the lipids to survive. Yeah. And, and they show that in that footage, if I remember right, of them just cascading out with, in, with those little drones. It's amazing. Yeah. 
Yeah, we'll have to share a link for that so our, our listeners can also check that video out. Absolutely. Pam, do you know of any other um, like butterfly migration maps or migration trackers that people could use to try to find these butterflies as they're moving through? Journey North. Um, it, it's uh, just Google. It's journeynorth.org, I think. But if you just Google Journey North, uh, they do a wonderful job. And um, they have maps for hummingbirds, whales, um, monarch butterflies. And you can follow the migration and know when peak migration is, um, where fall roosts have been sighted. And right now, we're the leading edge right now for, for the, this fall migration. Monarchwatch.org is also a really good resource. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a great place for resources. That's where you can buy the tags to tag with. Um, oh, my gosh. They're an amazing resource. And when you were talking about those tags earlier, you mentioned um, when you record, you're recording whether or not it was um, a hand reared butterfly or whether it was a wild butterfly. So when we do hand raised monarchs, whether that's in a classroom setting or um, someone's doing it in their home, like you say you love to do, um, is that is releasing those monarchs benefiting the population or is it really just kind of a fun item for us to be able to observe that process? I would say it's a fun thing for us to do because, um, you know, there's a hundred million monarchs that, that are in those roost sites. So the, the few that we do, it makes us feel good and that's fine. You know, that, that's perfectly fine. Um, but I, w- I would go on monarchwatch.org and and see how to properly rear them because you can increase disease and you don't want to release diseased monarchs out into the population. Um, there's a particular protozoan that is just deadly um, and it gets on the scales of the adult wings. And of course, when she lands on the milkweed, um, scales come off just like, you know, our skins comes dander comes off and if it's infected with that protozoan she lays an egg on there the caterpillar is going to pick it up so there are ways to check for that before you release Um, there are proper ways to raise the caterpillars so that you have um, a good success and you can release them but does it really help the population well i'll tell you what it helps in the respect that People have a better understanding of the process by doing that. And it is a wonderful thing for kids to do. Um, Just wonderful to see that whole process. Um, So I don't think it does any harm, especially if you're following the the right instructions. Um, I've done it for years. And there's been there was recent um, research last year that came out and said that um, if, if you rear them inside, that they will not. There was evidence that they wouldn't orient and migrate, but they only tracked them for three days. And so Chip Taylor, um, what they did is they took all the, the tags that people had used for reared monarchs. They contacted those people and they gave them a survey. And from the survey, they determined that a lot of a pretty a, I think maybe it was 20%. Don't quote me on that. I just saw this um, a couple of days ago. 
but a higher percentage than they expected were found in Mexico. So they are migrating. Um, maybe probably not near as high as wild population, but they are making it down there. But no one knows how that's happening. If if they're and some of the people, there were five people that said they had their monarch caterpillars in rooms with no windows, and they still were recovered. So what's going on there? You know, I, there, that's what I mean. There is so much to learn. Um, that was a long answer to your question. <laughs> I love it. It's perfect. Um, okay, so since. Because it's sounding like rear or hand-reared monarchs aren't necessarily benefiting the population so much as they are a learning tool for us to learn with. What mm-hmm. is something that people can do to help these monarchs on their migration, either north or back to Mexico? What, what can people be doing here in Kansas to help support these monarchs? Good question. Plant milkweed. Even if you have a small yard and you only have three or four plants, monarchs will find it. Um, plant native nectar plants, um, goldenrod, uh, glory or Indian blanket flower, um, cone flower, love that. Sunflowers, good nectar plant. Asters, another wonderful nectar plant. Um, uh, live forever sedum. It's not native, but it's still a really good. Butterfly nectar nectar plant. Butterflies need um, a large flower head, um, whether that's a long one like goldenrod or like coneflower, it's, you know, spread out or like sunflower. Those are the things that you can do. And and I would say um, start thinking about how you can reduce your carbon footprint because um, there was just an exhaustive study done by a university, which I'm not, it might have been Michigan, but I, I'm not absolutely certain on that. And they reviewed all the data for several years from tagging. And we're trying to look at, okay, what exactly is causing this decline? Because monarchs have declined 80% since the 1980s, 1990s, 80% the Eastern population. The Western population, they've declined 90, is it 90 or 95 percent? I mean, it's dramatic. And they found that it seems to be the, the it's all a cumulative type of thing. But the major thing is climate change. Um, the cold, wet springs, the change in weather patterns, the change in rain patterns, is really impacts that spring generation that needs to recolonize the north. So we should all be doing that. Think thinking about you know how how can we reduce our carbon footprint? And we need more milkweed. We need more native plants. So speaking of native plants, I'm going to shamelessly plug Dick Arboretum up in Heston, Kansas. If you're not yes. familiar yes. with them. They are a fantastic resource to help you start building your own native garden um, that will support not just monarch butterflies, but a whole bunch of different native species that need those little plots of um, native plants so that they can complete their life cycles. And they have native plants that you can buy. They have 
garden plans that they can help you with. I mean, they're just a super awesome resource. Um, we'll be sure to link uh, to their website so that you can easily access that and start building your own native garden. That's right. And they have a fall and a spring sale. Yeah, for their plants. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Pam, it's been an absolute joy to have you on with us today. We covered so much ground. I'm just completely baffled by all that goes into being a monarch butterfly. I have to say, I don't envy them and the complexity of their um, of their life cycle and their survivorship. But um, it's just been fantastic talking to you about how to ID these butterflies, their biology and life cycle, and then the ways that we can get involved as citizen scientists to um, get involved in those tracking procedures to help them through planting native plants in our yard, planting those nectar plants, like you mentioned, planting milkweed as well for those caterpillars and for the butterflies to lay their eggs on. So it's just been an absolutely fantastic conversation. And we're so glad that you could join us today. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate the opportunity. Anytime I can share about monarchs, (laughs) it's a good day. (laughs) Yeah. When we started talking about this episode, we were like, oh, Pam Martin, we got to call her up. (laughs) (laughs) I've been called worse than the butterfly lady. (laughs) Well, be sure to like and subscribe to the Flatlander podcast. Subscribing makes sure that you get notifications on when we release new episodes. You guys know we try to do that every couple of weeks anyway. Um, But that also helps us kind of up our ratings so that our podcast pops up sooner as well as people are searching for us. Share us with your friends and then reach out to us. So if you have any questions or comments about the conversation we had today with Pam, uh, reach out to us through Facebook and we'll connect you with Pam or answer those questions, get you hooked up with some resources as well. Alrighty, folks. Well, it's been great to talk to you today. Um, get out there, you know, get involved in the monarch migration. See if you can see anything even from your own backyard. Now is really a great time to get out and look for those monarchs. And while you're out there, just remember that flat is, is a state, state of, of mind. mind. Flatlander Podcast is made possible through a partnership between the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks and the Kansas Wildlife Federation. Sound and production by Megan Mayhew. Music by Kansas locals, The Box Turtles. Become a member of KWF for free by visiting kansaswildlifefederation.org. And be sure to follow KWF on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife Federation and on Instagram at kswildlifefed. Stay up to date on all things KDWP by following the department on Facebook at Kansas Wildlife and Parks and on Instagram at the KDWP. Remember, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks is supported by flatlanders like you through the sale of licenses and permits. Consider buying a hunting or fishing license today to conserve and protect the wild spaces and faces that make Kansas more than flyover country. <laughs> <laughs>